Hello, everybody, and welcome to my podcast, A Coach for the Coach. I'm your coach, Helen Williams, and we are building a community of sports coaches who want to be proactive about their coaching career, as well as building the next generation of student-athlete leaders. Well, welcome, everybody, to the Coach for the Coach. I'm your coach, Helen Williams, and uh, happy to have you here again. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for all the great uh, notes you guys have been sending me via social media. Um, it's been great to know that, um, you know, what we're doing has some purpose and some value to you guys. So, so this week, um, you know, there's so many things going on in collegiate athletics. And um, I have a friend who knows a little bit about what's going on and she's going to help us sort out all this craziness that's been going on. So um, I want to uh, invite my guest, Amy, Privet Perko, who is the uh, executive director of the Knight Foundation to enlighten us and uh, put some stuff in layman's terms. So, Amy, welcome. Helen, great to be with you. Great to be with my former teammate. Yes, full disclosure, we played together. So uh, I'm just pulling people that I know that are important that I played with to uh, educate all of us. But uh, happy to have you here, Amy. And again, you haven't changed in, in, in years. So uh, I'm excited to spend some time with you. Yeah, Great. Well, so I, I guess what I want to do first is explain what the Knight Foundation is mm -hmm. and uh, the purpose of the organization so that we'll have some context for our, our viewers. Sure, absolutely. Um, Knight Foundation actually funds uh, the work of the group that, that I serve as CEO of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, and we're funded by the Knight Foundation. And the Knight Commission is an independent group of leaders whose purpose really is to um, design and promote changes uh, that will prioritize college athletes, education, health, safety, and success. Um, we have 22 members um, chaired by Arnie Duncan, the former uh, U.S. Secretary of Education in the Obama administration, uh, former basketball player at Harvard, Lynn Elmore, who was an All-American at, at Maryland. He's an attorney and broadcaster. Um, Nancy Zimper, who's the Chancellor Emeritus of the SUNY system. So really a collection of thought leaders who have experience in higher education, college sports, but again, who all share the passion of really the important and life-changing role athletics plays in the lives of uh, individual uh, athletes and more broadly in our universities and communities. Um, just give you a couple examples, Helen, of some uh, kind of some policies that we've pushed for in the past that have had a uh, significant impact on uh, NCA structure and rules, um, particularly in the area of academic reform. Um, years ago, we began to push for changes that would better align the incentives in college sports with our educational goals. Uh, one example was that uh, we pushed for the NCAA to adopt um, rules that would require teams to be on track to graduate half their players to be eligible for postseason competition. Um, and, and that's that's the rule that's in place today. It was adopted in 2011, something we pushed for for more than a decade. And also uh, more recently, the NCA acted on our recommendation to distribute a portion of the March Madness revenues based on the graduation success of teams. Um, and so, uh, you know, the NCA distributes more than $600 million a year to division one schools. And a lot of that in the past was based on the performance of men's basketball teams in the tournament. And so we, we pushed the NCAA to reduce 
the amount of money being rewarded just for men's basketball success and to include academic incentives. And, and all of those, those policies as well as others have really um, helped lead to the record high graduation rates we see today for all college athletes. So there is, I don't think there's been any other time in my athletic career where there's just been so much change rapidly, literally day by day, um, as there has been this year. And, and so I want to tackle some of those things and, and get the Knight Foundation um, point of view um, on those things. The first thing I want to talk about is the transfer portal. Um, I had one of my uh, other former teammates, Lisa Stockton, on uh, on uh, a while back, and and um, she she likened it to a, a, a dating service, <laughs> you know, a dating app where you go on and you put yourself in the portal, and um, you know, there's there's you know probably a couple thousand in the men's for basketball, a couple thousand for basketball for the men, probably mm -hmm. half that for the women, and obviously a lot for football. Um, what is the, the Knight Foundation stance on the transfer portal? Yeah. So, so great question. And, and let me just say too, just from the outset, uh, again, our, our commission, Knight Commission, um, we're funded by Knight Foundation. So Knight Foundation is kind of a separate uh, entity, but mm -hmm. Knight Commission, um, and, and let me just give you, uh, I'll try to put this, you know, what we work on, we're kind of a think tank for policies. And so when I'm thinking through these things, you know, we, we also ha have had sessions where we talk with coaches, uh, WBCA, NABC, and, and of course their, their leaders are always involved in uh, kind of giving policy feedback. Um, but in terms of the Knight Commission's view on the transfer portal, um, you have to start with the rule itself. And, and most folks know that, you know, prior to the change, um, in sports other than football, basketball, and I believe ice hockey, all athletes were able to transfer one time and be immediately eligible. But mm -hmm. in, in those other sports, which were basically the revenue sports, there was that requirement that they sit for a year in residence. And so, you know, I think when we're looking at all the changes that are taking place, this really is what I've labeled kind of the era of the college athlete. Okay. Uh, and transfer rule changes fall under that in, as well as NIL. So you have the basic question of, do we, do we treat athletes on the same kind of fairness standard that we treat other college students? And, and when you look at that question, it's, um, it, it's difficult to, um, to, to not be in favor of changing the, the transfer rules to allow freedom to athletes to make mm -hmm. those choices. Um, and then, you know, frankly, though, the reason that it was changed is, is we're also experiencing a high degree of litigation and, and those kinds of restrictive rules uh, really aren't holding up in court. Um, and so um, when you look at it, though, in terms of the fairness to the athlete to allow freedom and transfer um, you have to be supportive of that objective, uh, but then also realize that uh, one of the biggest, you know, factors of successful completion of a of a collegiate degree is um, is retention. And and right. so you, you know there will be the the again we we hope that what will happen is is a sorting out that that you know they will be able to do it one time and then. Be able to find their place but um 
certainly is created, you know, from a coaching standpoint. I know a lot of instability, but coaches are always is is caused coaches to realize they have to recruit more for retention as well. Um, right, recruit your own players to stay. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and the the litigation piece is a great segue into. Can you help us understand the Alston ruling? Because that's yeah. separate than some of the other things we're going to talk about. But that was probably one of the first big dominoes of late that that's fallen and um, explain it to us in layman's terms. Yeah, I'll try, I'll try to explain in layman's terms. And, and again, you, you hit the nail on the head to start the conversation that 2021 really is a pivotal year for college sports. There's so many, there's never been more changes happening in a compressed amount of time. And uh, there was confusion about the Austin ruling because it happened around the same time as the NIL changes. And, and while there's some linkage, it really was a separate case. The Austin case, in a nutshell, was about whether the NCAA could, um, could make national rules to apply to all the schools that limit the educational benefits that athletes can receive. So we all know in Division One, you can receive an athletic scholarship, you can receive up to cost of attendance, and that's really it. So a school could not um, recruit an athlete and say, hey, you're going to get all those things if you come to our school, plus we're going to guarantee you three years of postgraduate education. So I'm using that as an example, the three years of postgraduate uh, education uh, was prohibited by a national NCA rule. And so the Austin case challenged the NCA's authority to make national rules that limit educational benefits. Gotcha. And, and in essence, the, the Supreme Court ruled 9-0. Um, the lower court, uh, of course, uh, found in favor of the plaintiffs, Austin. The NCA appealed that. Uh, ultimately, their appeal went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled 9-0 against the NCAA and said, yes, in fact, the NCAA cannot uh, limit uh, educational benefits. Um, so in, in, in practice, Helen, what that would mean is that uh, institutions can decide different types of educational benefits they want to provide to their athletes, or conferences can decide, hey, in our conference, we're going to allow our institutions. You can you can offer scholarships plus uh, three years of postgraduate. Um, that they also um, that ruling also included uh, a cash amount uh, that that schools can provide as an educational award, similar to uh, the types of things athletes can receive as athletic awards for their achievements. So. That, that's it in a nutshell, but it had much bigger impact because then the NCAA um, didn't feel that it had kind of the, the legal uh, rulings on its side to be able to enforce and, and, and put out a national name image likeness rule because it felt uh, it had a weakness, its authority was weakened not only just on the educational benefit authority, but also questions about, okay, um, now what can the NCA do as it relates to national rules that would um, limit athlete compensation for their name, image, likeness? Um, and so that's a question that, that is still, they're still trying to resolve. 
and and of course um, state laws really forced uh, that change on July 1 uh, and we can talk more about that but that's the biggest difference in, in, in the Austin case and its difference from NIL because Austin again that relates to what institutions can provide athletes NIL is supposed to be about what athletes themselves can receive from third parties, not their institution for endorsement. So, so the NIL, um, I, I think is, is giving people some pause for several reasons. One is obviously, um, you know, the athletes, uh, can go and, um, you know, try to make as much money as they can, obviously off their, uh, name, image and likeness. But, but I've seen where some schools have said, uh, let's take uh, BYU for example. You can't do, um, you know, alcohol or tobacco products or things like that. And how much, in your view, is that? Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, how much power do they have over an athlete to to you know make those kinds of decisions? Because I, I think part of it is, again, like you said, the different states had different rules, so there was no one. I know the NCAA wanted one national umbrella, mm-hmm. um, but that's not going to happen, um, obviously. But so different schools have sometimes a, a competitive advantage, I think, depending on, you know, where they are. But, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, what is, what is your view on that? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And I, you know, I think we still may see some changes on, on NIL as this plays out. Uh, the, the NCA certainly would still like Congress to get involved, but there are a lot of other higher priorities right now um, uh, that Congress should resolve. Um, but, you know, and, and I would just say from the Knight Commission standpoint, you know, we studied this issue for a long time and, and raised concerns about the fairness to college athletes as early as 2008. Mm. Uh, time really flies. And, and 2008 was a different era. And, and the focus then we actually held a national meeting because the focus was about video games where technology had had improved to the point that the avatars in those college football video games looked an awful lot like the actual college players. And so we had raised questions about, you know, the fairness of that issue long before the O'Bannon suit was was filed. You know, fast forward to today where we do have, um, you know, state state laws that, that really pushed uh, the current situation where we have state laws that vary. We have where where there are not state laws in place, the institutions can decide what what policy they want to follow. And, you know, our, our own um, approach, the, the Knight Commission, we put out principles back in April of 2020. Uh, so uh, last year, where we would have had more guardrails, if you will, than what is currently in place, we would have, um, you know, we were pushing for uniform uh, regulations, and one that would uh, ensure there's not institutional pay for play, that this really is about third parties providing uh, fair market value payments to athletes um, for endorsement pay. In terms of, you know, how restrictive um, the the institutions should be, I think most institutions are for a variety of reasons. And one of those is, uh, you know, to try to avoid litigation you know, are being as um, open as they feel like they can be in terms of, um, you know, approving, um, letting, letting athletes, um, you know, 
get engaged in, in any kind of deal. And, and really, again, at its core, the institutions aren't supposed to be involved. I think where it comes with in terms of institutional uh, control is, is if an athlete is asking to use the institutional marks um, in, in an endorsement. Again, the Knight Commission, our principal would not have allowed an athlete to use institutional marks um, because that brings the institution's value into the equation. And, and for a number of schools, those marks are worth a lot of value. Um, but, but some institutions have, you know, their own policies in place where they would not allow their marks to be used by, you know, a company involved in gambling, as an example. And so, you know, in those kinds of cases, it makes, um, you'll see institutions restricting, you know, the use of marks in those cases and maybe even more. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's, that's huge. One of the things that I thought about, you know, when the uh, name, image, and likeness was was passed, was how this was going to impact female athletes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, what is the Knight Foundation thinking about that? Yeah. So, so again, the it's a great question, and I think you know, as far as um, its impact on female athletes, we'll see how this plays out. But you know, I was really encouraged when you know July one. Uh, came around and you saw a couple of uh, women's basketball players being the first ones to sign endorsement the deals. Twins, yeah. All right. But, you know, it, there was also a study that showed during the last March Madness uh, tournaments, uh, the star women, the, the star players in women's basketball had more social media followers than uh, in the men's tournament. And, and as you, as we all know, this era is so different and what made, NIL in 2021, so different than NIL discussions in 2008, is social media um, right. and and how much that how that is monetized by college students, by professional athletes in terms of their their followers, and we've seen you know some uh, star high school players come to college with a million followers, um, and so you know I think the the social media aspect of it will certainly be one that, um, and we've already seen it in terms of female athletes um, benefiting from that. Um, but I think it'll be, I think you'll see a real positive. Um, there's so many great things happening in women's sports that, um, you know, just continue to show the upside. The The Women's College World Series uh, having, you know, uh, better ratings than uh, the baseball uh, College World Series um, and just the continued growth of, of the the audience in those sports and others yeah invest in women people invest in women <laughs> um so having that having said that with the nil there's some other options um specifically on the men's basketball side now that kids have um you have the uh overtime elite which is um you know they're building a facility uh here at atlanta and um, they're offering, you know, two-year contracts to kids who are, who are um, you know, still in high school and significant, you know, six-figure um, contracts. And then you have the, um, you know, the, the professional collegiate league, which will start next year. Mm -hmm. So those are some other options that kids have now coming out of um, high school or still being in high school. Mm -hmm. How do you think 
that that will mesh with the NIL now that you do have an opportunity to make money from your from your own likeness if you, you know, decide to go to college? Right. Well, you know, just just looking at those opportunities in the sport of basketball, we've always thought that that was a positive um, in terms of the marketplace developing, you know, those options. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, you know, I had an opportunity to work with the NBA. Uh, I can't believe it was 20 years ago when the NBA started uh, the D League, uh, which is now the G League. And, and its vision was for that league to be similar to the minor league baseball team that, you know, that where, you know, high school prospects, elite high school prospects can go that route instead of going to college. Um, so, again, in terms of the goal of freedom for, for players and athletes to choose what, what's best for their particular path, I think is a good thing. Um, I do think that, you know, we've already seen this play out, that there are a couple of um, players who probably would have gone uh, the G League route or the overtime elite route if they had not been able to make, you know, uh, endorsement pay in, in college now. So mm -hmm. I think you'll see, um, you know, ha having, having you know, more choices is a good thing. I think, you know, basketball is unique in – and now in terms of the opening of those opportunities that frankly have always existed for baseball, uh, golfers, right, and, you right. know, a number of other sports. So the marketplace is really just kind of opened up for basketball in that way. Thanks for listening to A Coach for the Coach today with special guest Amy Perko, Chief Executive Officer of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. As it stands, it looks like we need to bring her back next week for part two to further discuss getting back to basics, focusing on athletes' education, health, and safety. In the meantime, if you want more coaching nuggets, head over to my Facebook group, A Coach for the Coach, where we share helpful tips to take your coaching career to the next level. See you next week, same time, same place.